This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today we'll be talking to Herbs by Diane, Diane and Tom, and their successful business in Boulder City, Nevada, where they grow herbs for restaurants and at home. All this and more on today's Desert Horticulture. I've got with me uh, Diane and Tom from Herbs by Diane, and uh, I, I'm trying to remember how long ago, I can't remember how many years ago, when we first met, but I've, I've known both, uh, both Diane and Tom for a number of years. And I'm up here at uh, Boulder City. I, I won't get into it, but I remember when they first got started, and maybe Diane and Tom will talk a little bit about it, but Diane has Herbs by Diane and Tom as well, but Tom is kind of the silent partner in it. And, well, I, I shouldn't really say that. Diane is the silent partner. Tom is more vocal, but Diane's kind of the, the face and the name behind the whole thing. Uh, and the whole purpose of this is really to discuss uh, herbs, and uh, as Diane corrected me here a little while ago, not only herbs, but greens as well, and the growing of greens. And we'll talk about that and get started. So uh, if you would, if you just mention a little bit about you and Tom both, about how you got started and chime in whenever you feel like it's appropriate. Well, I started gardening probably in 1974. I was in a small company house uptown on the avenues, Avenue B in Boulder City, and um, I wanted to grow some food for my family. And so I couldn't grow in the backyard because there's this huge, big pecan tree, too much shade, and it was big. It covered the whole backyard. So I looked at the front yard and I thought, hmm, nobody will notice if I just cut out a little bit of this grass and start growing some plants in there. So I started with a about four by four square foot plot, just dug out the grass, dug in a little compost, planted my seeds. Well, that, that went good, but you know, there's two seasons of growing here in Southern Nevada, spring and fall, fall being the best. So when fall came around, I thought, well, this isn't enough room. I better dig out some more of the grass, throw it away, and, and plant some more seeds. Well, come the next spring, of course, I needed more room. Well, heck, I might as well just dig out all the grass in the front yard. Who needs that anyway? Put in raised beds, put in my path, and it all began. So we fed our family um, with the herbs and vegetables, and I got into being the director of the community gardens in Boulder City, and that was going good, but one year I had a tremendous amount of garlic. Now, I love garlic, but I had too much. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I need extra income. Well, I thought I could sell garlic on eBay. Well, garlic doesn't really ship that well, and my bulbs really weren't that big, and nobody really cared. So then I found out there was a little farmer's market in Boulder City up at the senior center, so I went and talked to the lady up there, and that was Donna Eddy from um, California. So she was bringing up produce, um, uh, vegetables and fruits and things from California and selling them at the senior center. They had the senior nutrition program going on, and so the seniors were issued coupons where they could use the coupons to get these fresh vegetables through the state of Nevada. So I talked to her, and she said, yeah, come on aboard. You're going to need a producer certificate. Oh, I didn't know how to do that. So I think it was at that time that um, I got a hold of Bob and asked him about growing organically, whether I needed to do that for the producer certificate or whether I could just 
be organic or if I had to be certified organic. So that started the whole thing with, with Bob in August of 2009 along with Chef Doug Taylor. So they came out and visited me and by then I had started doing a farmer's market in Henderson on Water Street with Dave Starr as the manager. They came out and looked at what I was doing and here I had this table sitting out in the sun with a bag of Swiss chard that was slowly shriveling up, my little baggies of herbs that were not very happy and Tom was running back and forth to the 7-Eleven getting me ice just so that the herbs wouldn't completely wilt. And that's how we started then with um, Chef Doug was now the market manager off of Dean Martin Drive at Batali's Warehouse. We started going there and that's where it all took off. We met all kinds of chefs that were very, very nice and really cared about local produce. Tell the listeners a little bit about how you and Tom got involved in all of this stuff. I remember the production way back when, that was a long time ago, and the production now, and it's really quite, quite a bit different than what it was now. So what are you guys doing now? So right now we're dropping off orders at uh, the Fresh 52 Farmer's Market every su Sunday in Henderson on Eastern. Uh, we aren't participating in Farmer's Markets anymore because we're too old. It's too much uh, moving around heavy things, bringing our coolers, bringing the tables, bringing a refrigerator. So basically now we're dropping orders for customers at the Fresh 52 Market, plus there's a uh, the Fruits and Roots restaurant off of 215 in Buffalo and Eastern. Um, other than that, the other thing that we're doing is delivering to chefs all over the Vegas Valley. But we have a much larger capacity now than when we first started. When we first started, Tom had a teeny little greenhouse for me where I was growing my microgreens. And quickly we outgrew that, so he built me a big greenhouse that is very happily filled with uh, sunflower greens, pea shoots, broccoli greens, micro, micro broccoli, micro shiso, and micro cilantro. And we now have a two acre lot on which to grow. Well, yeah, that is a little bit different than trying to grow on Avenue B. So with the two acres, we figure it's about a half an acre in production right now how your production as it's going on, what kind of uh, herbs and greens are you now presently growing? Well, now we're shifting over to autumn. So now is a time where the greens are really, really growing well. Um, during the summer, it, it's a challenge to try to grow greens. Everybody wants lettuce for their salads. I'm trying to teach them that you can use other things than just lettuce. Um, the sunflower greens, the radish greens, the pea shoots, all are good additions to salads. But we found there's some other greens that love the heat, so we love those plants. One of them is sorrel, which will grow all summer. Nice lemony zing to it. You can add to salads or omelets or soups. Um, another green that we love is New Zealand spinach, which is sort of a lemony succulent-like succulent plant that also loves the heat. Can do it either fresh or lightly steamed or in soups too. And then for the last few years, we've been doing Greek greens called vlita, or it's also amaranth leaves. And those, you have to cook. There's no way that you can nibble on those raw. They're just like a collard. You have to boil them for about 10 minutes. Well, I know you've got a lot more going on out there than that. 
because you just gave me a tour of all those microgreens that you're growing for the chefs. And uh, talk a little bit about uh, the growing of microgreens, because when I walked into that facility, you had it, uh, Tom had built it in such a way as it was cool, it was moist, it was like it was growing in the Pacific Northwest. It wasn't like it was growing in Las Vegas. Well, the microgreens are pretty happy right now. Starting from about the last week or so, we've had the cooler weather. So all of the different microgreens are, are growing great. I don't have to water them as much. We have a tarp over the top that we grow in the summer, on the top of the greenhouse to keep it shaded during the summer. So we have that scheduled to come off this, this week. Um, but when you first started, you were growing some, when you first started, you were growing some, uh, some radishes and you had an excess number of radishes and you thinned them and you ended up with some little baby radishes. And well, that's how I discovered what microgreens were. I didn't know what they were. I just knew that I had a, a spot of radishes that I had sown too thickly and my mom wouldn't, wouldn't allow me just to throw plants away that were good, so they went on our salad. And then once I got online and saw, well, microgreens is a thing. It was a really big thing 10 years ago. And so I discovered how to grow them. And we are probably one of the only growers left in the valley that still grow in soil. It's a sterile soil. And we grow in natural sunlight in a greenhouse, not in a warehouse. So it's, it's very popular with the chefs. Well, what we do with our microgreens, um, we use the, reuse the trays. And like I said, we use pay dirt from Star, which is our, our medium. But as we dump out the microgreens that I've already harvested, we dump that on the compost. So it's composted down. And then the trays are rinsed out with water. And then they're bleached, rinsed again. And then fresh pay dirt is put in. It's um, moistened and then we put the seeds in and they go straight into the greenhouse or if I have overflow they'll go into another room that we call the seed room. Well at first when I, I, when I started it I had this huge big compost pile on Avenue B where I first started doing the microgreens and I thought huh, I'll just use compost because it's so good for plants and I tried growing microgreens in the compost without cooking the compost you know just sterilizing it. yeah without sterilizing it cold compost yeah and so it was a mess all kinds of started things started growing in it now i love my compost because you never know what's going to come up once you add it to a bed so you're going to have things but it's not good if when you're trying to grow a full flat of microgreens of one different variety to have kale or mustard or something come up in there but you tried a number of different uh materials. I tried the baby blanket and it just wasn't working for me. I don't know. It, it, it wouldn't keep moist enough. Um, I couldn't keep it. And that was even by putting a dome on. It just didn't and, work. And, and even other mediums like paper. Yeah, the, the coconut stuff too. I, I tried that and it just... But other composts. The one that, the one that seems to work the best was the, the pay dirt. Yes. And so that's, we get it by the pallets full. So let's let's follow you a little bit on a, a cycle. Right now, what herbs are you herbs and greens? You are you growing uh, for the fall months, and I assume that you'll be going through the winter and then in the, in the spring as well. Let's walk through that. Okay, so so right now I've already started my my baby beds, which which Bob saw out there. I I take a 
like a foot by two foot area, scoop all the dirt, scoop about an inch of dirt away, sprinkle seeds down, cover it up. So that's my baby nursery. So as soon as those get big enough, then I move them into their permanent beds. So right now during the fall, um, it's a great time for, for greens. We're doing a broadleaf uh, annual arugula, beet greens, dandelion greens, um, red Russian kale, the New Zealand spinach will keep going for a month or so. Swiss chard. So all of those greens will keep going all the way through March, probably, or April. And then when they are done, what do you do with them? Well, first let me explain that, that when we harvest them, it's all harvested by hand. Um, we're gloved up. We use scissors. We cut, but we cut around the outside of the plants. So we're not actually pulling plants up and throwing them away. So we keep going from the plants that we have now, we'll have those for months, um, March or April. And then what we do is when they're done, we pull them out. If it's something the chickens like, uh, like the arugula, or probably any of the greens, they go to the chickens. And if we have excess, it goes onto the compost. Then what we do is um, pull out all the greens, pull out all the weeds, get the shovel, and we fluff the soil, which is a technical term, which means you get the long shovel, the thin one, and go down a couple of feet, and you just stir up the soil. And then what we do is, is bring in our homemade compost and put um, a good layer, four or five inches if we can, and stir that in just on the top. And then it's ready to be planted again. Do you use any mineral fertilizers uh, at all in your growing? No, somebody gave me some... Zeolite, maybe. Zeolite, yes. that's it. The zeolite. Mm -hmm. And I know I planted some somewhere, and I don't remember which bed, and I didn't write it down. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if that works. Other than that, no. We use fish emulsion for our fertilizing, but mostly it's adding in the compost, which feeds the, the new plants. So the compost is really your primary ingredient for feeding the plants, uh, mixing in the compost. And that, when you're making a compost, how do you make it? Um, well, we use anything that's not weedy seeds. So any, um, like we can put in the purslane that we're taking out now, but we don't dare put in mint. We don't put in Bermuda grass. We don't put in any of the weeds that have gone to, to seed because we don't want those spreading all over the garden. So that will be um, disposed of. But all of the, uh, the stems, the roots, the leaves, anything we can goes into the compost. And then we scooch the, the good compost from another pile onto the top of that, keep it wet, keep it turned every couple of days. Um, during the summer, it heats up real, real quick. And so within a few weeks, we should have compost ready to go and we just keep making new piles. Well, we've got really bad nematodes. And so, first off, we don't grow a lot of tomatoes. We just grow a handful of the very, very small tomatoes for us. Um, but we did notice that this summer, the nematodes were really bad in the summer squash. And so when we pulled those puppies up, they go into the trash. But you don't necessarily plant in the same, the same thing in the same bed season after season. No, no, it gets complete. It, it depends on 
what it feels like. So you don't systematically no. choose no. What, what, what goes where? No. I just try to make sure it gets enough water. <laughs> and I saw something else that you were doing, which was interesting to me. Uh, when you were watering your plants, you were overhead watering. You weren't using any drip uh, at all. Right. I've tried drip. We had inline, um, inline tubing um, when we were over on Avenue B just because that's the way the garden was set up. Those things get so, um, so clogged up that I'd have to undo the, the ends where, where the caps were and then shake those puppies and try to loosen up anything there. And I'm, I'm constantly uh, digging in the beds, refreshing them, adding more stuff during the summer and adding, adding um, mulch and hay on top that it would just destroy the tubing. Well, and it's, it's a, a very large area now that you're planting in and you mass plant instead of planting in, in individual plants in a row, it's mass planting. And so the only way it seems to, to irrigate the entire area is to overhead spray. Right. So, and like I've always said, we, we don't do square in, square foot gardening, we do square inch gardening. If, if you were planting in rows, though, it would be much easier to use the inline drip. Exactly. And to always leave the beds that size, right. And I noticed that some of your seed packs were Johnny's seed packs. Right. And uh, do you buy them exclusively from Johnny, or do you buy yeah. other places, or what do you, where do you source your seed? Um, well, we have a, a couple of places. The, the one that's the quickest and the, the easiest and the, the quickest, I guess, which is easiest, is out of Utah. It used to be wheatgrass kits, but now it's Two Leaf Market, I think is the name of it. Um, yeah, out of Utah, and they're, they're doing bulk seed now, and so it's making it, it much easier, and they're much cheaper, too. And they offer both organic and non-organic. Notice the beds out there are about three feet wide and maybe about eight feet long? About that. We want to make it so that we can, we're able to lean into it and work both sides. And when you're seeding it, uh, I noticed that you had one room, uh, that you just uh, have buckets and you're soaking the seed um, prior to prior to planting. Tell, tell me, talk about that. Okay, so that's for the microgreens. So it started out when we were first doing microgreens, I was soaking a cup of seed in a glass mason jar on the counter when we were on Avenue B, which will do, you know, a tray. Maybe, or maybe it's two cups, we'll do a tray. But you soak them for six, eight hours, drain them off, and then some of the seeds will get planted right away, like the pea seeds will go the next day will be planted, something like the sunflower greens. Um, I leave them in the buckets for two days, and then they get planted, so that way they have a longer tail, a longer root. root. And um, so that the microgreens are all done that way. It's either one-day soak, but when you plant when you plant something like chard out in the out oh okay so I make my baby bed so that's about a foot foot wide and maybe two foot long and I scrape off about an inch of soil the whole thing and then I just drizzle seeds on there really really thick and then cover it up water it in and once they get big enough to transplant around uh, maybe four or five inches sometimes smaller um, then they go into the permanent beds that far apart, about three inches apart, really close. 
And so I think that helps with retaining the water and the moisture and, and having everything grow because I grow everything way closer than you're supposed to. Let me get this straight. When, let's say you'll go to a bed, and this is an outside bed? Outside, yeah. An outside bed, and you're taking, a, you're scraping away some of the topsoil after it's been amended with compost mm -hmm. and whatnot. You're scraping away some of that compost, that soil. You're spreading, you're drizzling seed as much more seed than you than you need, but then when the seed, then you're covering it back up, watering it in, and when they get up to a certain size, you said about three or four inches tall, maybe shorter than that, two inches tall, you'll go ahead and move them, but move them much closer together than the other seed, than than what they say on the on the plant, what uh, than they say on the packet. So why do you plant them so close? I think that it helps with keeping the moisture because we'll also come through and we'll put um, alfalfa hay on top to mulch it. So the alfalfa hay has enzymes in it that helps with the growth of plants. Um, if we don't happen to have any alfalfa, we can use straw or something, but we found the alfalfa is the best way. It's retaining the moisture, it's keeping the weeds out, and the plants are happy. So you're, you're using a, an alfalfa hay Right. As a, as a surface mulch. Right. After they come up? After they germinate? Ap right. After the, yeah, after they get moved into their permanent beds. So there's an overhead irrigation, mm -hmm. and you're washing that mulch. And how long you get, you source that alfalfa hay? It's not straw, it's hay, right? Hay. Hay. Uh, it's, you're sourcing it locally, or? Right. We get it from Sunset Feed. Sunset Feed on it. And then you go ahead, mulch everything in, and then overhead irrigate. Right. And that washes all of the nutrients from the from the, the hay, alfalfa hay, back into the soil again and stimulates right. some microorganisms. Plus, you're using some nice stuff, the fish emulsion and all that kind of thing. So you've probably got a lot of biological activity going on in that soil. Yeah. Sometimes we get sow bugs and that will eat off the little babies when they're first coming up. Sow bugs? You mean like the pill bugs? The pill bugs, yeah. The ones that roll up into a ball. Right. What do you do about those? So I found the best way is to use a beer trap. So I cut my um, clamshells, take the lid off, bury that down to soil level, fill it full of beer. I do this in late afternoon, and then come back in the morning and dump them all off because they're all in there drowned, drowned, drowned. And so uh, you, you're, at least they're dying happy. Yes, they anyway, are very happy. They're yes. very happy. So uh, on that, now, if, if I'm understanding it, then these are then growing up. And these are mostly the herbs. And uh, are these herbs that you're growing, the greens or the herbs? or They're, they're mostly the greens. Um, with the herbs, I found, well, this, this year is unusual because I had everything up and going, ready to go to all the restaurants in March when everything got shut down. So I had an abundance of, of basil because I had a couple people that were just, you know, we want all your basil. So it got, it got too leggy, it got too old, and so I found that the best thing to do with basil, which is my secret for this year, um, treat it as a half an annual plant. So it won't last the whole season. Just, just grow it for a few months and then have replacements ready and just pull them out and I dry them, and then I put new babies in, and it all worked out fine until we had that great big wind and that cold snap about a month ago, destroyed all of it. And so how, how long between uh, replanting, pulling it out, drying it, and replanting would it take? 
I started them in the, the babies in the greenhouse, and then as soon as they were big enough, I moved them outside. So we're talking, you know, they were only a couple, in, an inch or so. They were very small. How long did it take before you could harvest those? Oh, it took a while. Jeez. A couple weeks, two months. or three months? A month, maybe. A yeah, month. About a month? Yeah, they grow pretty quick once they get going. But I just found that um, the ones I had started early and then were ready for March, there was no market. So. What's your favorite basil? Sweet basil. The sweet Genovese? Yes. Like the Italian basil? Right. Um, but I would say second would be the um, purple basil. Like purple Thai or? Not the Thai. I, I don't like that as much, but the... Ruffles? Um, yes. The purple ruffles? Purple ruffles. Because uh -huh. that's really good in cold pasta salads. Tell me some more, mention some more of your favorite herbs for this climate. And when, when you would put them in. Okay, so the one thing that everybody gets all excited about is cilantro. Well, you cannot grow cilantro in the summer. And that's when everybody wants to make their salsa. It just, it won't grow. It won't grow in the heat. Um, even the micro cilantro, I can't get that going in the summer either. So I heard there was this wonderful plant called culantro. Have you heard of that? No. Well, it ends up that it's a tropical plant, and when I ordered it in and planted it in the desert in June and July, it was not a happy camper, so it died. So there's no, um, at least I can't find any replacement for growing cilantro in the summer. But you could, could you... I'm guessing you'd dry the cilantro. You could dry it in oh, yeah. spring. Right. And then maybe even rehydrate it again and use it, maybe. If you like cilantro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But now is the time to plant cilantro. So we've got some little babies started now, and they'll start taking off real soon. And we've got um, micro cilantro now, too, because it's, it's cool enough to make it happy. What really impressed me, uh, I guess, a lot was walking into that greenhouse that Tom built, and yet I saw a small greenhouse full of tools, which is normally what happens to small greenhouses, right. is they become supply, supply closets, more or less, in the garden. But that one that you built was very low. It was, Tom, um, looking at you, it was very low. It, had a, it was very cool. You had a swamp cooler going on the inside. It wasn't, didn't have a lot of light. And uh, the reason why it, I built it low no, I, I built that from scratch. I went to the hardware store, and, and, and I had assumed that this was going to be a very temporary structure. So I didn't put a whole lot into it. But uh, one, of the, one of the requirements was it had to be below the window level so Diane's father could see out the window and, and, and see a distance. And so the, the, the roof of the thing is just at the, the bottom of his windowsill. Um, as it turns out, I mean, that's, it's worked out well with a flat roof because we were more easily able to put a, a tarp on it in the summer and shade it. So that's why it's, it's so shady in there now. We haven't taken the tarp off for the fall. It'll come off this with, week. Without the tarp, it, uh, with, with so much sunlight coming in, it overheated. So that greenhouse, it really, to me, it's not really a greenhouse as much as a propagating room. Right. And it's really a room that's relatively dark. And I, I understand that you got the shade on it and you're making it dark, but you're also going microgreens uh -huh. primarily in there. So they won't need a lot of light. 
like you might find in most greenhouses. Is that right? Or? Right. So in a regular greenhouse, a standard greenhouse, you might want to grow something to the point where it flowers or, or produces a fruit. You're going you're gonna to grow it for a much longer period of time. In this greenhouse, all you're trying to do is grow it for just long enough for it to green up, to, to, uh, uh, for that seed to, to form its uh, cotyledons, have them fold out, and to green up. So when it's greening up, and it's mostly, are you giving it any supplemental light at all? or Nope, that's it. That's it. Yep. So it's going in, and I would say it's probably 75-80% shade in there. It's pretty dark, mm -hmm. but you've got that swamp cooler, and it's cooling it down. It's adding humidity. Oh, yes. Uh, that was one of, the, one of the, the, the difficulties in trying to cool that was in either trying to buy all the materials needed to put in a wet wall, like a standard greenhouse, or the simple thing was to use a swamp crawler that we already had and install that, which is what I did. Uh, and we have since replaced that old swamp cooler uh, just this last winter, uh, and it, it, it works great. So for microgreens, you, could, you don't need a lot of light. No. You could get by with a, a swamp cooler, a growing area, just cooling it down enough. So you could actually do that in home, inside a, a kitchen or pantry area. Oh, yes, you could. And just as long as you'd want to get that humidity up somehow. Right. The humidifier or whatever. Right. And in, in this greenhouse, I used, uh, it's a corrugated polycarbonate. And they have, they have different colors. They have the clear, they have a white, and they also have a smoke. And this is what I used was the smoke. The idea was to reduce the, the light levels so that we wouldn't overheat in the greenhouse. And even with the smoke, it gets very light in the summertime during the day, and it does get, get warm. So um, although the, the light still comes in the walls, putting a, a tarp over the roof reduces the, the amount of light even more, or at least reduces the amount of heating even more. Uh, and we can keep the, the interior around 75 degrees in the summertime with that swamp cooler. But the, the whole point is you don't really need the light if you're just growing them for a short period of time. Well, you don't need full sunlight. You do need a, a fair amount of light, especially for some things like the, the uh, sunflower greens. Uh, you need, they, they have to be out towards the outer walls so they can get more light. So what greens are you growing in there, the microgreens? What, what are you growing in there? So um, all year long we do the sunflower greens. We do three different kinds of radish greens. We do a white stem, we do a three radish mix, which is spicier, and then I do a mix of red and green, which is the fancy stuff for the chefs because the red, red radish is very, very expensive. We're also growing, now that it's cooler, the pea shoots are much happier. Micro broccoli, micro kale, micro shiso, micro cilantro when you're when they're using it the microgreens what are they using it for um i think mostly garnish we have uh, fruits and roots which is a juice bar she buys a lot of microgreens and and mostly it's uh, a garnish on top but she also uses um, three different kinds of mint that we have for their smoothies the chocolate mint peppermint and spearmint when you're growing those mints, I noticed you had some mints growing in a bed. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you're doing that, because mint is notorious for being invasive and spreading all through the garden. 
Right, and, and during the, the heat of the summer, it's not happy at all. So what we have to do is cut down as much as we can, about three inches down, and sort of rejuvenate the whole bed. We'll put on compost, we'll give it some fish emulsion, I'll dry the, cut, the ones that we cut off. So we do like a half a bed at a time, cutting it down, letting it regrow. And then along the outside, they'll like to jump into the next bed. So we try to keep uh, using a square point shovel, try to keep it in line because it will run all over. And we never, when we pull the plants, we never put them in the compost. So how do you go about containing the, uh, the mint? I, I, I keep it from running just by square cutting it on the right. edges? Yeah. And then you're pulling it. Right. But the walkways, the walkways have a weed barrier fabric so that uh, if, the, if the mint extends beyond the, the boundary of that, that individual planting bed, it's on top of weed barrier fabric and can't really extend beyond that unless it's above ground. And then mulch on top of the weed barrier fabric, you know, so we put wood chips on. You know, so three, it, doesn't, it doesn't have an opportunity to reroute right next to the bed. So it stays pretty much contained in that right. one area right. on it. And I'll post some pictures. I'll go back and take some pictures on my cell phone and post some pictures on the, my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert, for those of it that want to see pictures of, of Diane and Tom's uh, raised bed area of their herbs with it. So uh, I, I'm getting kind of a picture now. Your raised beds are just wide enough. I notice your walkways are not wide at all. <laughs> I would say about 12 inches apart. Yep, for little feet. For little feet. <laughs> but it's also, as I was looking at someone's uh, raised beds area right now, and I was looking at the distances between raised beds, when you're trying to grow things, at least for me, it's more important to have an area for growing than it is for walking. Right. You just want to be able to walk through it and uh, harvest and do whatever you're going to do in those areas, but you don't want an excessive amount of, uh, of space. Right. Talk about harvesting. What time of the day do you like to do it? How do you do it? Well, all of our greens are cut and come again. So we glove up, we sanitize our scissors, with, we put our gloves on, and then we clean our scissors with alcohol and we cut the outsides, the larger leaves are the outsides of the greens. So that way they'll keep growing for months and months and months. Um, we have to harvest early in the morning before the, before the plants get hot. The, 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 the plants can be damaged if they're, uh, if they're trimmed in the heat of the day. And, the, and whatever produce you, you pick isn't going to survive as long if it isn't well hydrated like it is in the morning. Right. I remember that uh, story that you mentioned a little bit ago uh, when we weren't on microphone at that time, but you're at the farmer's market, and you told about Tom having to run into 7-Eleven and getting ice just to cool everything down so that you could sell. And that's one of our problems with farmer's markets that are out in the open in the desert area, and it gets hot in the summer months, it's, and it's very extremely dry. So it's really tough to get those uh, plants uh, in, keep them fresh for any length of time. So in the summer, we'll start working at 6.30, and that's when we'll start uh, harvesting the herbs and bagging them up and get them in the fridge as soon as we can. And the same with the greens. Um, something like peppers and all, we, we harvest those toward the end of our shift. But the leafy green stuff, we, we try to get harvested right away. But when do you, when do you stop harvesting? when I'm done with my work. <laughs> Sorry. 
When do you try to get your harvesting finished by? Um, in the summer, we try to get done by 8.30 or 9. We never cut after then. And I've been trying to teach my chefs, too, don't give me an order the, the day before, you know, in the afternoon because I can't go out and cut. And I don't do, I don't do any harvesting. Uh, you were talking about me being the silent partner here. What I do is I repair the irrigation system. I install the fencing and make repairs to it. And in, in two different sections of the, of the gardens, I built giant cages over them, uh, both walls and a roof over the top of them, at seven feet high over the, t the top of them, so that birds can't fly in and get to the, the material that's in there. But uh, I, I don't harvest and I don't plant. So tell me, tell us, uh, what your number one pest problem is. This summer and this spring, it's been the ground squirrels. Um, we've never had so many. They stripped our almond tree and, I don't know, they called all their neighbors came and they just stripped the tree in a, a week or so, it seemed like. And then they've never gone over the little bunny fence in front, but um, they were going over and they were eating the middle of the squash plants which destroyed the plants and I had to replant. Um, so they've been the worst. If those were your worst, the ground squirrels, what was second, second and third? Also bad this year were the sow bugs, which I said we drowned. And usually that's just the, when we're, the sow bugs really come out after, they're after the organic material after we put in the compost. They'll just come from wherever they come from and, and they're only bad usually for a week or so. Then the plants get big enough to handle to handle it. How about your Bermuda grass? Oh, Bermuda grass, yeah, and weeds. Yeah, we how have- do you, How do you control Bermuda grass from encroaching on those beds? We dig it out. We have our shovels and we try to get down as deep as we can, but uh, I've been told the roots go down 12 feet and uh, we just do the best we can. As soon as we see weeds coming up, if I've got enough people, um, everybody goes on weed patrol, pulling out the weeds and throwing them away. So how many people do you typically have working for you? Usually we do about four people, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes we have a couple of volunteers that um, will come during the, the nicer weather, like in the spring, they'll come, they'll work for one hour or for a shift, which is usually uh, two to three hours. And in trade, they'll, they'll leave with nice greens and herbs as a trade. Um, the others work four times a week. Special, um, we've got a couple of the guys that, that know how to do the microgreens, so they'll do that, and then we'll move them over to the weeds, weed control. You mentioned that birds were sometimes a problem for you. How do you prevent bird damage, and what kind of damage do they do? Well, that's why I love Tom's cages, because there's roofs, and the, the birds typically can't get in, but there is one-inch one gaps, some of them, and some of the little some of the little birds will, will go in that way. But what we're also doing this year, we've never had to do before, we're putting up metal hoops and then we're putting bird netting over the beds with the greens to keep the birds out. Um, if we're not careful, they'll sneak in and, and simply destroy a, the whole bed. And in the summertime, they not only eat greens, they also chew on them to get, uh, get moisture. It was so hot this summer, that they eat the, strip the leaves off of our mulberry trees. Yeah, birds have been bad this year. Okay, so on the pest control, you mentioned the sow bugs, you mentioned the ground squirrels, 
you've mentioned the birds being a problem, Bermuda grass encroachment, and so it sounds like you're doing everything uh, quote-unquote organic. Uh, we have a USDA which encourages people to use the organic trademark, which means they follow certain protocol with it. Uh, are, are you an organic producer, or uh, how do, what do you consider yourself? I grow organically. And so I, and I have for 30, 40 years, and, and to me, that's the best you can do. But you're not certified. I am not a certified organic, true, and I never will be. I thank you for your time, and I hear that music starting right now, so it's time to leave, and I hope you gain something out of this. Bye-bye. Look for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's Extreme Horticulture beginning with an X. Also look at my Facebook page, Extreme Horticulture, and follow me there.